All right, uh, open up your Bibles to Joel chapter 2, 18 through 27, and we're going to get into the Word of God. There is much to be thankful for, and I'm thankful for the book of Joel. (laughs) So this can sort of be a Thanksgiving message, not exactly, but we are very thankful for the message of the book of Joel. So if you're joining us here in person, it'll be up on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, it'll be up on your screen at home. But Joel chapter 2, 18 through 27. This is God's word. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down you for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vast shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory and we thank you so much, Lord, that you truly are a God of promises and you keep every single one. And Lord God, you're you're a God who comes to us in time of great crisis and need and you speak to us and you correct us, you rebuke us, not to destroy us, but to restore us and heal us. And so Lord God, thank you. You are an awesome, amazing God. And yes, you do great things. So God, thank you for this time. And Lord God, this is a season of Thanksgiving. And so Lord God, help our hearts to really bend towards gratitude that we would be thankful, thankful for all the things that we have in you and for you yourself, most of all. So we thank you, Lord God. Thank you for this time together and for everyone joining us here and online. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, praise God. Well, we're still in the book of Joel, and last week we looked at the lost years that the locusts have eaten. And in ancient Israel, uh, the real locust plague came, billions of locusts came, and they destroyed all the crops that the Israelites depended on for food. And that brought a real famine, a real death, and you know this very well by now. And all of that was God's judgment upon their sin. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So the wages of sin is death. And that, by the way, is a law, right? That's a law of the universe as real as a physical law of the universe. Because God can't stop being God, and God must always judge sin. So God judges sin, and his judgment came upon Israel's sin. And the prophets, including Joel, call that what? The day of the Lord. That is the day of the Lord. And Joel made it clear, if Israel continued in their idolatry and sin, then even a greater day of the Lord, so there are many days of the Lord. Of course, there's the ultimate day coming when Jesus returns. 
But Joel said, there's an even greater day of the Lord that would come if you persist in your sin, Israel. And he talked about this invading army from the north, and they will bring an even greater destruction upon Israel. And that, by the way, was a prophecy, an actual prophecy that was fulfilled in 700 B.C. by the Assyrians. And I believe that's also a prophecy of the future. When Jesus is going to come back, there's going to be another great day of the Lord coming upon Israel shortly before Jesus' return. So the wages of sin is death. That is an unbreakable law of the universe. People are living their lives any which way right now, doing whatever the heck they like. Can I say that word in church? Heck? But they are just living their lives however they want, and they are not taking this seriously, and yet the Bible is clear. This is an unbreakable law in God's universe. The wages of sin is death. And so because of Israel's sin, death came upon them. There was death in the form of famine, and also an army that came from the north, and that was all because of their consequence of their sin. But here's another consequence that came because of their sin. It was lost time. It was lost time. So in Joel 2.25, God was speaking, and he mentioned the years that the locusts have eaten. We just read that. But the years that the locusts have eaten. And so because of these locusts, and it wasn't just a few, it was billions of them coming upon the land of Israel, they lost years of economic prosperity. Years. They lost years of hard work spent planting and harvesting the land. They lost years of future prosperity that should have been theirs. Every year they should have gathered this harvest and ate some of it and stored more of it. And they should have built up this prosperity over time and they lost all of it. All those years were gone. So these were the years that the locusts had eaten. But we looked at this last week. This is so much more than the economy, right? This is more than economic loss. Because these locusts, they represented what? Sin and the consequence of Israel's sin. Because why did the locusts come? Because of their sin, right? So this represented the consequences of their sin. And the consequences of sin still go about eating and devouring years out of people's lives today. So this was the whole message last week. But this is still happening today, right now, maybe even right in here. But the consequences of sin, sin and the consequences of sin, are still devouring years out of people's lives. And so people, they lose one year, and then another year, and then another. And over time, this hollows people out. This hollow, hollows out their lives. And I mentioned how you can just kind of tell when you look at some people who have just lived a long life of not knowing God and living in sin and rebellion to God, they just kind of have that vacant, hollowed out look. Okay, this is what we're talking about. Their lives become a spiritual wasteland. Okay, what I mean is there's nothing in their lives that has to do with eternity, that will go into eternity. Okay, there's nothing in their lives that will bring glory to God. There's nothing in their lives that will lead another person to the grace of God. There's nothing. is a spiritual wasteland. So what are these? These are years that the locusts have eaten. These are years that are gone because of sin. And last week, we looked at several different ways sin can eat up the years out of our lives. Okay, we got very specific last year. But if you go back and look at all the groups of people Joel called out in chapter 1, you can get a pretty good picture of how sin and consequence for sin can eat out people's years. But for example, the elderly who just lived according to their own wisdom, how many people are doing that these days? Okay, making decisions that they thought were best. Going after goals that they thought would make them happy. They don't pray. They don't seek the Lord. This is just something that I want. It's going to make me happy. 
And so without any acknowledgement of God, without any seeking after God, they begin to live this kind of life. And then little by little, what happens? They are climbing the ladder of life only to find out is leaning against the wrong wall, as the saying goes. So what is all that? That's years that have been eaten up out of people's lives. Years. We also saw how living for our own appetites, like the drunkard in chapter 1, living for the pleasure at the moment, this can also eat up precious years out of people's lives. Okay, we're talking about people who just wake up every day and they just drift from one appetite to the next. Okay, it could be entertainment, it could be relationships, drugs, sex, whatever. One day they're binging on social media, the next day they're chasing after the newest fad. The next day they're just going around tasting all the great foods. Again, nothing wrong with that, but this is their life, right? The next day they're just hanging out with friends, the next day they're fighting with their friends. So it's a lot of busyness at nothing. It's a life full of sound and fury signifying nothing, to borrow from Shakespeare. It's just a lot of activity that amounts to a whole lot of nothing. And so what is that? These are also years that the locusts have eaten. Okay, what else did we look at? We also looked at people who are religious. Okay, these are people in the church. My parents are Christian. They brought me to church. I grew up in the church. And yet they had religion but without God. And there are a lot of people like that. This can also eat up a lot of years in people's lives. These are people who grew up in church. They are always in and out of church. They have a knowledge of religion, but no knowledge of God. They have the doctrines of grace, but no grace in their lives. They are always hearing God's word, but never obeying. They are always studying God's word, but never learning, never understanding. Jesus said to these people, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Paul said it differently, but he said they're always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. How sad is that? It's like going to school forever, but you're never getting a degree. You're never learning. You're never graduating. It's just, just a lot of sitting through meetings and sermons and Bible studies. So these are people with religion but no God. And all that time and that godless religion is what? Those are also years that the locusts have eaten. You went to church every Sunday, went to Bible study every week for what? For what? This is what the word of God is challenging people. For what? And then there are people in the church, they do have God. They do have the grace of God. Okay, they're not people without God, just religion. These people do have God. They have truly repented and put their faith in Christ. And now they are now living under the sunlight of God's grace. Okay, it's beautiful. They're in the sunlight of God's grace, and yet they're in darkness. Their lives are still in darkness. Why? Because they're always a victim. Even though they see God's grace, they see his promises, but what's real in my life is I'm a victim. I'm a victim to my circumstances. Why, why does that stuff always happen to me? You know, I, I had a friend like that, always saying, why does stuff like that always happen to me? I don't know, it happens to me too. But they're a victim to their circumstances. They're victims to the people around them, right? Even to their own genetics. How come I was born like this? Dad, it's your fault, right? Mom, it's your fault. They're always walking around condemned, they're condemned by what they've done, what they haven't done, what they've done, but they should have done more. I mean, they're always falling short to their own standards. They're condemned. These are people in the church carrying around fears and worries. They're like heavy chains wrapped around their necks. They're always just bound up by these fears and worries. Money fears, relationship fears, job fears, school fears, fears about their parents, fears, fears about their kids. Later, your grandparents, fears about your grandkids. And God repeatedly commands in his word, do not worry, do not be afraid because I'm with you. And yet, for these people, fear and worry is clinging closer 
Right? It's even closer than the God that they say they know. You know, I remember years ago, there was this girl in my college ministry, and I remember she was kind of sharing to a group one time that she had all these nightmares all the time. And she said that these nightmares stem from all these fears that she had about her life. And I remember afterwards, I asked her, I said, you know, uh, how long have you had these nightmares? I want to pray for you. And she's like, years. I was like, whoa, years. Right? I've had nightmares for years based on these fears in my life. And I don't say that to judge anybody. We have compassion on these people. They need help. But these are the years that the locusts have eaten, right? I mean, they're literally living under the sunlight of God's grace. I said it like this last week. Between the two pillars of the spirit and the gospel, and yet they're condemned, right? They're living under fear, constant worry. Again, these are the years that the locusts have eaten. And then we look at people who have replaced God with work. So these would be the farmers, the toilers of the soil in chapter 1. But they took work, which is a blessing and a gift from God. This is how people are going to glorify God with their lives. Most of you are going to spend majority, 80% of your days at work. Don't be depressed by that. <laughs> okay, that's, a, that's not a bad thing. And yet people take that blessing and they turn it into a God. Little g. Your work is what provides for them, is what protects them, comforts them, satisfies them, is what saves them. Literally, work is what's going to save me from whatever hell you're trying to avoid, right? This is what saves me. It gives them identity, meaning in life. This is literally what they wake up for every morning. This is why I wake up and live my life, to work. And yet work is a very fickle God. It's a harsh God. Okay, love will love you one day, and then it'll kick you out to the street the next day. Okay, we know that. So you know what happens? People love their work, and then they hate their work. So it's a very up-and-down relationship. And if you're sitting here today and you're like, well, not me, I love my work. Even if you're in an amazing job and you're doing exactly what you hope for, let me tell you this, it still won't save your soul on that day when you stand before the living God. You put all your trust in that, how's that going to save you on that day? So then what are all those years you have poured into work, trusting in your work? Again, you will spend most of your days at work. That's not a bad thing. God designed work. But trusting in your work, looking to work, worshiping your work, instead of using work to worship God. Okay, what are all those years? Again, those are years that the locusts have eaten. Those are wasted years. Those are dead years, spiritually. So these are some examples of how the locusts, how sin and the consequences of sin can eat up the years out of people's lives. Literally, hollowing them out. Even people who say they know God, who have Christianity, and yet they're just hollowed out inside. And humanly speaking, these are years that we can never get back, right? We can never get these years back. You know, a few weeks ago I mentioned this uh, truth that everyone has a fixed number of years on the earth. God ordained the day of your birth, you had nothing to do with it, and you have nothing to do with your death. Even if you're one of those guys that like to jump off a cliff, attached to a rubber band, you you don't determine the day of your death. God has ordained that. And what that means is we all have a fixed number of days on this earth. And you will not get one minute less or one minute more than what God has decided you will get. So it is a fixed number. Imagine if you had a number on your chest that ticks down every day. How will that change your life? Well, for a lot of people, because they're not aware of this, they look back on their life on all those years. I'm talking about years, not days or months. They look back on years And all they see is, what was it for? 
right? These are the years that the locusts have eaten. You know, last week I mentioned the old man that John Piper saw at his dad's church. But one Sunday he was a, he was a teenager sitting in the front and he saw an old man come to the front and he accepted Christ. And as he came to the front, he had tears in his eyes and he cried out. Piper said, I, I, I'll remember this forever. He said, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. And he was talking about his own life. Why, why am I accepting Christ now? At the very end of my life. And he was a very old man. And he said, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. So even in the joy of coming to Christ, as this old man looked back on all those years of doing who knows what, he just living his life any which way, looking at the years that the locusts have eaten, that was an enormous burden to him, right? He just cried out. So this is so far what Joel has been talking about, but praise God, that is not the message uh, that is not the entire message of Joel. That's not where it ends. So today's Thanksgiving service, so praise God, it doesn't end there. But Joel was a gospel preacher, amen? He was a gospel preacher. And so starting in chapter two, there's a dramatic turn. There's a great reversal that happens. Okay, Joel was a gospel preacher. And in verse 12, Joel, or God, I should say, through Joel, declared, yet even now. If you have your Bible open, you should just underline, circle those three words. Yet, even now. Those are the three sweetest words you're going to hear in your life. But yet, even now. Okay, you could be in the darkest night, right? The deepest pit of crisis. And you know why you're there. Because God has revealed sin in your life as you're facing these things. But if you repent with all your heart. Joel said, if you tear your heart, rend your heart. It means literally ripping like clothing in half. If you tear your heart and repent with all your heart and come back to God, God says, yet even now. Yet even now. This is good news. God will speak those words to anyone who repents and turns back to him. I don't care who you are. Yet even now, what? God says, I will pour out mercy and grace on your life. This is the gospel message. And how? Well, He's very specific in Joel 2.25. Yet even now, I will do what? I will restore all those years that the locusts have just devoured out of your life. Hollowed you out. Whether it's fear, addiction, just living a stupid, frivolous life, whatever, a godless religion, spending all this time at work, trusting and worshiping. God's saying, I will restore all those years that the locusts have eaten. So listen to God. God said in Joel 2.25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. And by the way, God's he's going to do so much more than just restore those years. We'll see that next week. He does so much more than that. But at a minimum, God said, I will restore the years that your sin has gouged and devoured out of your life. All those wasted years, like that old man, I wasted it all, right? I wasted it all. God says, wait a minute, I will restore all those years. All those years that seem gone forever, God can restore them. And this declaration, it was a very personal message from God. Because when Joel was describing God's judgment back in chapter 1, he used the third person. I mentioned this last week. But Joel said, he has done this, he will do that. But when Joel comes to chapter 2, talking about God's renewal, his reversal of judgment is suddenly the first person. 
It switches to first person. Now suddenly it says, I will do this. I will do that. God speaking in the first person. It's almost as if God wanted to deliver this part of the message directly. It's like, okay, step aside, Joel. Thank you for giving my word. But I will deliver this part. Right? This is how important it is. I will do this. I will do that. So what was God's message? How does God restore the years that the locusts have eaten? Well, there are several things God mentions. Well, first, God said, I will bring a reversal of judgment. I will reverse the judgment that is on you. If you look in verse 2, chapter 2, I'm sorry, verse 19 through 24, it says, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will, notice all these I am's and I will's, right? First person. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul of, and smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord, I have done great things. In other words, I, I have done greater things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. So here, God obviously is not promising to return literally years back to you. He's not going to give you. like So for example, if you wasted decades of your life, he's not going to give you like another 50 years. You're not going to live to 150, right? But he's, what he's saying here is, Rather, God said, I will remove everything that comes from my judgment and I will remove everything that continues to eat up your years. You, you don't understand how amazing that is. Have you guys ever seen a bug problem? I remember back in college, we had this roach problem. They would not go away. And so we just lived with these roaches. They were just kind of like pets. And then on the day when we finally moved out, we were like moving our furniture, the couch, our fridge. I mean, it was just like a roach graveyard. They died of old age, right? They, they lived a comfortable life. They ate plenty and they died of old age, but it was disgusting. But you cannot get rid of sin. They're like roaches that just will not leave your life. They continue to devour and devour these years. And you guys know, like that girl I mentioned back in my college ministry, I've had these fears for years. For some people, these things only die when you die. They die with you, with, with old age, right? And yet God promised right here, I will remove them. That's what he's talking about. Everything that is devouring these years up, where you're not living with joy and thriving spiritually, living in the power of God, overcoming sin, overcoming fear, being freed of condemnation. God is saying, all these things that you cannot get rid of in your life, I will remove them. And you will no longer live a life of wasted years that the locusts have eaten. See, this is especially clear when God says, I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea. And now listen, the stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. What is God saying? He's saying this army, which is representing judgment on your sin and the consequences of sin, I will remove them, and I'm not going to just remove them. They are going to be completely and utterly gone forever. How do we know that? Because they're going to be killed and they're stench, right? They're going to stink up the land. Now, these northerners, a lot of Bible scholars say, well, these are just the locusts. Maybe they came from the north. 
Never mind that they usually come from the south, but maybe this time they came from the north. I actually believe that they are an actual army that came from the north. Jeremiah talks about a northern army, so does Ezekiel. I believe that's a more convincing interpretation. But whatever your interpretation is, right, that's not the point that I want to get it to. But God's emphasis here is the judgment and sin that took so many years out of your life, that have wasted so much time in your life. God said, I will utterly remove it from you. In fact, they're going to be so removed that you're going to smell the death of these things, right? It's going to stink the air. In other words, they're never going to come back. They will never return. So the consequences of your sin and the judgment upon your sin, God said, I will utterly remove. Isn't that what Jesus said? God will remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. He will remove you from the guilt of your sin. You know, I remember back uh, when I was at the church I attended in college, the pastor, a pastor came and spoke, and he kind of gave this weird analogy, this weird uh, picture of God's judgment. It was so weird, I never forgot it. So I'm going to just share it with you guys. But he said, God's judgment is like a Christmas tree that you bring into your home, and this is something that you believe will bless your life, you know, something you want in your house. So you bring it, you decorate it in a beautiful, beautiful way, and you're looking at it, it's pretty, it blesses you. And then that night, after you go to bed, the cat, you have a cat, I guess, comes out and pees on that tree. And it stinks it up a little bit but you don't recognize it right away. The next day, okay, you're looking at the tree, it's beautiful, and then you go to bed, and then the cat comes out and pees on that tree again. And it keeps happening several days in a row until finally, a week later, you're like, what is that smell, right? The whole house stinks like urine. Piss. Can I say that? <laughs> it's just, it just stinks, right? You know, you know the smell. You know the smell very well. Okay? It just stinks. What is going on? So this is the pastor's picture, right, of God's judgment. And he said, the house is your life. The Christmas tree is something that you brought into your life to bless you as a blessing. That cat is sin. Sorry to you cat lovers, but that cat is sin. And that cat is peeing on your tree every single day. And that smell smell filling your house with urine is judgment. (laughs) You are under God's judgment. And so wherever you are in your house, wherever you are in your life, whatever you're doing, what is going on, right? Just something stinks. It stinks. And so people at different seasons in their lives, they they have the smell of judgment on them. And I don't say that lightly. I've, I've seen that in my own life as well. I've lived through seasons like that growing up with my own family. But seasons of conflict, there's emotional abuse, Okay, there's ongoing financial crisis. I'm not just talking about the normal hardships we all have, right? We all, we all have hard times. I'm talking about like massive crisis that's just unusual, but they keep happening. For other people, it's just addictions, persistent fears. I mentioned fears and worries, flaring up. But there, is just all, there are all these things happening. And by the way, these are the same things I mentioned earlier. These are the, the locusts that eat up our years. And over time... There's a smell of judgment on people's lives. It's just, what's going on with my life? I'm just living my life and trying to do the best I can, but there's just, right? Something just stinks. And so going back to that picture of the Christmas tree, what God is saying here in Joel 2, 
He's saying, I will take that cat. Again, I'm sorry. <laughs> I will remove that cat. I will throw it out of your house, and something else is going to start to stink, and I'll just leave it there. Okay, I won't. You can imagine what else. But something else is going to begin to stink. Because once that cat is dealt with, soon the urine smell disappears, right? Your house becomes fresh again. And then that thing you brought in as a blessing in your life, it actually blesses you again. And so this is what God is talking about. I will remove that judgment that is upon your life, that is just filling up your life. No matter what you're trying to do, what you're doing, where you're going, there is this judgment on you. And God says, I will remove that. But here's a question, though. But how can that be? Because earlier, I said the wages of sin is death, right? That's an unbreakable law of the universe. That's how God designed this universe. It goes against his character to overlook sin. So how can that be? How can God just remove judgment? Okay, is this just kind of an exception here? No, there are no exceptions. The wages of sin is still death. But here's the truth, though. But for the people of God, someone else has paid the wages of our sin by dying in our place. And so who is that? That is Jesus upon the cross. So Jesus is God. And so think about this. Even back in Joel's day, when God said, Israel, I'm going to remove the judgment on you and remove it so far, it's going to stink, right? There's going to be a different stink somewhere else. God says, I'm going to remove your judgment. I'm going to reverse your judgment. Even in Joel's day, when God said that, he knew there was a price tag for that. Why? The wages of sin is death. That's an unbreakable law. So even when God said it here in Joel 2, he knew there's a price tag for that. And God knew, I'm going to pay it. I will pay it, Israel. One day I will be the one to pay that price for your judgment to be gone with my own blood. So this is an earth-shaking truth, and this is why the Bible keeps coming back to it again and again and again. God said, I will remove your judgment on you, and it's going to cost me my very life. But see, but there's more. God's reversal doesn't just end with removing judgment, but God's reversal goes on to now bringing this renewal, this amazing renewal. Renewal. If you look in chapter 2, this renewal, and it's, and it's very beautifully written, but it comes in reverse order. Okay, I mentioned this at the end of last week's message. But it's mentioned in reverse order from the judgment described in chapter 1. But if you go back in chapter 1, Joel talks about how Zion, you need to mourn, right? God's judgment is on you. Day of the Lord has come. Mourn, Zion. And then he goes into the desperate condition of the land and the animals, right? He's talking about how pathetic and how terrible it is for the land and the animals. So that's God's judgment. But now in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, it's reversed. It comes in reverse order. But God first mentions now the renewal of the land and animals. You can go back and read it. But now the animals are thriving, the land is flourishing, things are growing again, right? And then he commands his people to what? Stop mourning. Rejoice. Zion, right? Zion's another word for Jerusalem, people living in Jerusalem. Rejoice, right? Stop mourning. So it's in reverse order. So the sin and judgment that came upon our lives because of sin is now being undone. God is literally reversing that. And you know, the Bible does this all throughout. I, I love how the Bible does this. Do you guys remember the book of Esther? We went through it last year. Was it last year? Two years ago? I forget when. During COVID. 
But this happened in the book of Esther as well. But in the book of Esther, God literally was building up. This great crisis was happening. Remember, all the Jews were going to get killed by Haman. Esther was the queen. And that was happening. And and then finally, this one faithful day, this reverse happened. And then everything that was building up, it began to reverse. And it got described in reverse order. But here's what I wanted to point out. And I think this is true in Joel as well. But how did the reversal happen where the Jews were about to get wiped out, genocide, and then suddenly they got saved? What was that reversal in the book of Esther? Do you guys remember if you were here? You're like, I wasn't here. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you. The reversal happened because of this like no-nothing, just like this small little event where the king couldn't fall asleep and he just woke up in the middle of the night and said, hey, didn't we owe Mordecai something? Mordecai was Esther's uncle or cousin he was serving in the royal palace. Don't we owe him something? He like saved my life. Don't we owe, owe him something? And so one sleepless night of the king, just wondering about something he owed to somebody, reversed everything. And then from that point on, boom, 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 boom. Genocide became salvation, right? And so I believe that going back to now the book of Joel, this is the same thing in the book of Joel. But Joel doesn't mention exactly what brought all the reversal, but don't just think God said, oh, it's going to reverse now. Boom, hey, everything's good. That's, not, that's a fairy tale, right? That's not how life really is. But then how did all these things reverse? I believe it was the smallest thing, right? It was the smallest thing. Maybe it was just a wind coming from the east, blowing the locusts away. Maybe it was them finally finding some, uh, a bag of seeds somewhere. But it was the smallest things that began to reverse the judgment. And this is how God works. This is how God works in our lives all the time. But God is always reversing evil in our lives and reversing the judgment upon our lives if we come in repentance. And oftentimes it's invisible. So just because you don't see it right away, just because, okay, okay, good word, reversal of judgment, but I don't see anything, right? Roy, where is it? I don't see anything. Well, I want to encourage you. It's going to probably happen in a way that you don't see. When the reversal of judgment came upon Esther, she didn't see it. She didn't even know what was happening in the king's palace. And so it might be that way as with you. But the smallest, most insignificant things will begin to turn around your biggest crisis, right? The judgment, that stink in your life because of sin. God will begin to turn that around through the smallest things. You know, I shared this, I think, before, but my parents, you know, they, they had a really rough um, marriage growing up. Eventually, things just completely broke apart. Uh, It was a very difficult situation, and they lived apart for many, many years. And during that time, uh, I've shared this before, but I had a brother who passed away. He took his life. I had another brother getting into a lot of trouble, tons of trouble. That's his story to share. I won't share it for him, but lots and lots of trouble. But you know what began to reverse all that? Our family is in a completely different place now. My parents came back together after 15 years. I I don't know any other couple like that. 15 years they were separated. They came back together. They're like a married couple now. They live together. After 15 years, my brother now is saved. He has his own family. He serves at church. He got baptized. He he loves the Lord. But you know what brought that reversal? It was a movie that they wanted to go watch because my dad, he never came down to our family uh, to see us on Thanksgiving. He, He just missed many, many Thanksgivings, right? For whatever reason, he came down for this one Thanksgiving a few years ago. For whatever reason, he came. And we're like, okay, it's good that you're here. You'll probably leave, and we won't see you again for several years. But you know what changed it all around? There was a movie 
that my brother and my dad and my mom wanted to go see. I wasn't there. I was with my family. It was, I don't know, some gangster movie or something. I don't know. They wanted to go see this movie. The showtime was not right. They didn't have the right showtime. So they're like, ah, oh, dang it. So let's go for a drive. And then they started driving on the freeway. They kept driving for like an hour. And then they got off on this exit. It was a beautiful neighborhood. They began to drive up the mountain. And then, I kid you not, my dad in that moment just fell in love with this area. He never wanted to live here. He never wanted to be down here. He was going to go do his own thing and live his own life somewhere else. And he fell in love with that neighborhood. And then little by little, my mom and my dad started talking and talking and talking. And right around that time, they started getting their social security, their pension, all this stuff came together. And they decided because of that movie they couldn't watch and that neighborhood they saw on that day, I'm moving down here. I'm moving down here, guys. And I want to live here. And I'm going to buy this house. And I'm going to live with your mom. I'm like, what? That all happened in a very short amount of time. So what am I saying? God was beginning to reverse God literally reversed okay, that judgment, okay, all that pain, all that brokenness in our family. He just reversed it, and it happened through the smallest thing. I wasn't even there. I just heard about it afterwards, right? And so this is how God oftentimes works. It's through the little things in life. That's how God reverses, right? So don't be looking around going, God, where is it? I don't believe in you anymore, right? I don't see that reversal. Well, maybe it's right under your nose in the little things. Maybe you're not even there when it happens, and yet, this is the way God works. And so, yes, are we living in troubled times? Yes. The headlines are massive. There are massive events happening all the time. And Christians are oftentimes focused on that. But let me encourage you, look at the little things. Look at the daily things in your life. Look at the things that you might overlook. Oftentimes, this is what God will use to begin to reverse the judgment. To reverse all the brokenness and bring renewal. So this is what we see. There is a reversal of judgment. But that's not all. But God also said, I will bring a raining down of grace. There's a rain of grace. This is another part of the reversal. Look at verse 23. God said, again, first person, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. Okay, I'm not a farmer. Okay, I just read this. I don't quite understand this. But I heard that rain is very important at two times in the year, in the spring and in the fall. You need both. So this is the early and the latter rain. The early rain is the rain that comes in the spring around March and April. And the latter rain is the rain that comes in the fall, around October, right? September, October. And both are needed. The first is needed so that it softens the ground so you can till it and plant seed. And then the second rain is very important so that you can actually harvest. Rain is important for the harvest, I guess. But this is what God is talking about. I will bring down the rain. But of course, it's much more than that, right? Because rain in Scripture is what? It represents God's favor, his grace being poured down upon his people. And this is more than just, oh, I'm going to bless you with things that you want, right? Just good things. But this is God's covenant promise. This is God's covenant with his people. Why is God even saying this to, to Israel? Because you're my people. I made a covenant with you. If you go back into the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, God promised, if you become my people and I am your God, I will always make sure there will be rain on your land every year and your crops will always come up every single year. And so what does this mean to us? God is saying, I will always pour down my grace upon you. Always. Always. Not just twice a year, but every year. All year. 
every day, my reign, my grace will be on your life. Right? This is his covenant promise. And so I love how the New Testament takes this theme now in the Old Testament, and then it just runs with it. Okay? It goes far beyond what even the Old Testament said. But Paul said in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, and how many guys know that when sin increases, most people aren't looking for grace, right? Most people are what? They're condemned. Oh, why am I doing this now in my life? Okay, I thought this was out of my life. Why am I going back to this? Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a habitual sin. Why, why am I doing this more and more in my life? You're not looking for grace. You're feeling more and more condemned, right? But what did Paul say? Where sin is increased, grace will increase even more. Grace abounds all the more. So the New Testament takes this theme of reign and grace and just goes even further. So the good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on our behalf is why we have this grace. We have this grace. And it's not just a grace, again, that brings us things that we want, like a house, cars, a good job. God will provide. But he's not just talking about things that we can idolize again and worship again and covet again. Okay, that's not what he's talking about. But he's talking about so much more than that. He's talking about a grace that will change the fundamental foundation for your heart. So that you not only just get different things, but you will get a different kind of life, right? Because your heart directs your life. So God's here talking about rain coming down, grace coming down. That will change your life. That will change the foundation your heart is built on. You know, recently I just read that people who have iPhones, I have an Android, so I don't have this worry. <laughs> but people who have iPhones are getting sick and tired of iPhone. That's what I read. I don't know. <laughs> and they said, you know what? The time has come for them to revamp the platform, right? Build it on something different. Every iPhone is the same. They just tweak the camera. They just tweak the color. But build it on a fundamentally different platform. Please, Apple. <laughs> well, guess what? God has done that with our hearts. He's not just tweaking the camera and the color and, you know, the shape here and there. He has rebuilt it. He has rebuilt it on a fundamentally different platform, what is that? That is the work of grace in your life. So this is what the gospel does. See, every other philosophy, belief system, religion, they just offer tweaks. You know, lately I've been listening to all these testimonies of Jewish people coming to faith in Christ. I'm going to mention one at the end of the message. But this is just not a tweak. This is a fundamental overhaul, an extreme makeover of their life, right? Their heart, the way they see everything. In fact, a lot of them got persecuted when they came to faith in Christ. But this is what the gospel does. It's an overhaul. It is an extreme makeover. Everything else is just a tweak. I don't care what religion you follow, what you believe in. It's a tweak. The gospel is the only thing that does an overhaul. It is a radically different foundation. Okay, what do I mean by that? Every other religion, every other belief system says, what I do and what I can achieve is how much I'm worth right, is, is, is how much I'm accepted by the people around me, by the God I worship. It's all based on what I do. It's all based on how much I achieve, how I perform. The gospel is the only thing, as far as I know, there's nothing like this. It's the only thing in the world that says, no, absolutely not. It's the other way around. Because of somebody else's performance, you are already accepted. You are already, in God's eyes, at the highest level of achievement of perfect holiness and righteousness. Whoa. That is the gospel. It is only because of somebody else who lived in your place and died in your place that you have now reached the highest level. I love this analogy, but it's like giving 
somebody their diploma on the first day of school. Here, somebody else took all the classes for you. Here's your diploma. This is the gospel. Jesus lived the righteous life that I could never live. He died the sinner's death that I never would want to die, but he died in my place, the wages of sinner's death. He paid that wage. And then he overcame death by rising again, which I could never do, of course, but he did it for me. And now based on his work, I'm perfect. I'm accepted. And by the way, that's a perfection that humbles you, not makes you proud. It humbles you. Why? Because you have nothing to do with it. It humbles you. So you might have heard all of this before. You're like, yeah, yeah, that's the gospel. But, but you don't understand. Unless you take it deep into your heart, it doesn't become a foundation for your life. It doesn't become this radical new overhaul, this new foundation. You're still using the previous iPhone with the tweak, right? You're not using the new iPhone. iPhone 15, is that the number? <laughs> you're not using the new iPhone. That's going to be an overhaul if Apple listens to people. You're still using the old one with just tweaks. So this is the overhaul. Martin Luther called it a passive righteousness. Did you hear that? It's passive. It's a righteousness that you do nothing to earn. It's just given to you as a free gift. And then he said, Christians do not completely understand it and rarely take advantage of it in their lives. Close quote. Luther said, you know, I didn't know this when I was a monk in the Catholic Church. And now, as I teach this all around, most Christians don't understand it and rarely take advantage of it. But you have a passive righteousness. That is a fundamental different way to live your life. You don't need to go out and strive or do anything to be accepted and loved by God. Now, don't get me wrong. Once you accept that gift, now you strive, but it's a total different motivation, right? It's thanksgiving. It's gratitude, right? We're talking about thanksgiving nowadays, but it's thanksgiving. That's what motivates you, not fear and trying to achieve and perform under somebody watching you. So your motivation to pray, your motivation to obey God, it completely changes. Before we only obeyed or prayed out of desperation when you're in trouble, right? How many guys have done that? Oh, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble right now. I better obey God. I better go back to church. Maybe I'll start praying again. That's the person who doesn't really know the gospel yet. You've only been tweaked, right? It's not a fundamental different platform. But for the person who has deeply taken the grace of God in, now you pray why? To be in fellowship with God. God, I know you hear me. I'm already in covenant with you. I know you're, all, you're already going to work all, good, all things for the good in my life. I just want to be with you. Can you help me, God? Your source of identity before is based on how hard you work, how much you excel more than others. Now it's just simply based on what Jesus did. Jesus loves me. I love him. I'm in him. That's who I am. I'm a Jesus freak, right? I'm in Christ. That's my identity. Criticism and how you respond. Before you might lash out in anger, and I still do that, right? We all do that. Or you might get crushed. Oh my gosh, that person criticized me. You're just devastated. You're just crushed. You're just playing that tape in your head over and over and over again. And of course, we all still struggle with that. But the person who has a fundamental different foundation, yeah, that kind of stings. But I can hear them for what they're saying, and I'm going to move on. Because my worth isn't on that, right? I'm not trying to win the approval of people. I already have God's approval. It's a free gift. The way you respond to trials. Before, again, you're like a victim. These are the years that the locusts have eaten. But now you endure it with joy. That's why there's so much talk of joy in the New Testament. Rejoice, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of all kinds. Are you crazy? Christianity is just fantasy, right? No, it's not. It's because you don't know the gospel. 
If you truly have this different foundation, yes, I get it. I rejoice. Because the whole world is mine. Right? Everything I have is from God. So, so some trials are heading my way. I rejoice. I rejoice in him. So you get the picture. It could go on and on. Your relationships, right? Before it's always about like, oh, being a little bit better and jealousy and you're just struggling in your relationship and there's conflict, what they didn't do for me, what they did do that I didn't like and there's all this conflict. But now in your relationship, you can be genuinely happy for others. Wow, they passed me up, but you got the promotion. I'm just so happy. I, I really am. I'm so happy for you. Why? Because I already have everything. Right? The person who has everything, they don't care if something gets passed up. <laughs> if they get passed up and somebody else gets blessed, they, they don't care. Right? Do you think Jeff Bezos cares if the government forgets to send him a $1,000 check and I got it instead? What? Where's my 1000 bucks? Right? He doesn't care. He's a billionaire. He has, all, he has the whole world, right? In the worldly sense. This is the Christian who has Christ. It doesn't matter. Right? You got that promotion, I didn't get, it doesn't matter. I have, I have the whole world. The Bible says heaven and earth is mine, and I have God who's better than all of that. So this is a radical different foundation. This is the grace of God. So do you understand when God says, I'm gonna pour down rain on your life? It is like rain, it's rain. And so now based on that, the New Testament says in Hebrews 4.16, let us then, then what? Let us, after receiving this grace, right? After you've received this grace, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace for help in time of need. Right? This is why the Christian comes to God now. Okay, we have grace. We're driven by his grace to come to him now. And as we do, what happens? He fills us up. So this reversal is so much more than, okay, there's no more urine in your life, there's no more judgment, but there is just rain being poured down. And I love this imagery in Joel 2 of now fresh wine being poured into vats that were empty before. Okay, the land that was barren and scorched, now it is sprouting up with grain everywhere. I mean, it is just a beautiful thing. So there is rain of his grace pouring down and then finally redemption from shame. So reversal of judgment the reign of his grace, and then finally redemption from shame. So look at verse 26 and 27. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. So here God is clearly being very possessive and I mean that in the best way, kind of like a faithful husband who's possessive of his wife and kids, is, hey, family, you belong to me, right? And I belong to you. And because of that, I'm gonna take responsibility over you. I'm gonna care for you. Okay, that's what every good father would say, a good husband would say. Okay, they are possessive of their family, and this is God here. He's very possessive. But notice what he says here. He says at the very end of this passage, our passage today, verse 27, he said, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord, your God. See, I'm your God and there's none else. You don't have another God. I'm your God and you are my people, right? He said, my people shall never again be put to shame. So he's very possessive there. And by the way, this is exactly how he opened this passage in verse 18. So his book ended by this very possessive statement. 
Look at verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. This is that kind of jealousy of being possessive, right? He's very jealous. So it says here, he's jealous for what? His land. This is my land. And he had pity on who? His people. And then it says, the Lord answered and said to his people. Do you see that? Very possessive. God's like, you're my people. I am your God, and this is my land. So here, God is very clear. He's saying, Israel, you belong to me, and I belong to you, Israel. And because we are now in Christ, church, you belong to God, and church, God belongs to you, right? We belong to God, and God belongs to us. And this is where we get redemption from shame. Okay, this is our final point. But this is where you find redemption from shame, Okay, the shame of living a life where the locusts have eaten out all these years, of just drifting, of living under this judgment, of constant conflict and brokenness and sin and other people's sin affecting your life. And there's just shame in that, right? I remember every time we went around sharing in our small groups back in college, I mean, there would always be at least one person here and there, I would always see this, where they just kind of didn't want to share, right? It's like, oh, yeah, I don't want to share. And then later on, you find out it's because there's so much brokenness in their life. They're just ashamed of it. Well, this is where the redemption of shame comes from, is God comes into our life, and now we're his, right? We belong to him. You know, I remember uh, many years ago, I was with my mom, and we were watching TV together, flipping through the channel, and we came upon this dating show. It was a Korean dating show. I do not watch these shows, okay? Okay, trust me. I don't remember what the show was. I don't remember what the rules were, but they were kind of like doing their dating stuff. And then at the end of the show, there was a climax where there was this beautiful banquet room. And there were tables all throughout the room, tables for two, just two, right? And there were women, young women, sitting at each of these tables. And then in a little bit, right, the announcers all like building up the tension. And then little by little, young men started walking in. These are guys that were dating these girls earlier, right? They started walking in, and one by one, they would sit at a table where a young lady was at. But there were fewer guys than women, right? <laughs> so there wasn't a guy for every woman. There were only like a handful of guys, but a lot of girls. And one by one, a young guy would find a table and sit down, and that's the girl he chose, right, at the end of the show. I choose you, I want you to be my partner, and I'm gonna have dinner with you. And then, you know, she gets all happy and they're all talking. And then the camera, this was a terrible show, would like swing and pan in real close on the other women who had no guy, right? And you kind of see their face, they're just like, <laughs> it's, it's a terrible show. It's like, I, I don't know, I watch it to the end. But it's like, it was like, what? What kind of a show is this, right? And they're like zooming in super close and the girls just all like, like some girls were about to tear. And then one by one, after about 15 minutes, as all these couples are now dining and talking, they get up and they leave the room in total shame. And of course the camera's following them, right? <laughs> in total shame. And so to me, that is a very good picture of what gets rid of our shame. Well, God in this passage says there's one thing, Israel, that will get rid of your shame. Me. I will come to you. Right? I am going to come to you. You don't need to be like that girl waiting at that table for 20, 30 minutes and no one's showing up. I am going to come to you. Why? Because you belong to me and I belong to you. We are in covenant together. And once I come, the nations will know and chapter 3 really gets into this. But all the nations that are pointing their finger, look at you, pathetic Israelites. Okay, you worship the living God? I mean, who even is that God? Look at you. God's like, no, they're going to be in shame, and I will remove your shame. I'm coming to you. Right? They're going to be like that girl sitting at the table with nobody there. 
I felt, I, I felt so sorry for them. You know, I'm not, I'm not putting them there. But it's like, I'm going to be coming to you. So their shame will be taken away. So this is so beautiful, brothers and sisters. This is the reversal that God brings. It's amazing. It's amazing. The locust has eaten up years out of our lives. And God said, I will restore that. And again, God doesn't do it by just literally giving you more years in your life. But how does he do it now? The picture's clear, right? He removes the judgment from our life. He removes that thing that continues to devour years, right? The stink over our lives. He takes that away. He begins to pour down rain and brings renewal. Even using the smallest thing in your life, something that you might not even notice to begin to reverse everything. And then he comes to us, he himself, like the knight in shining armor, comes to us and removes our shame. This is how he's going to restore all the years the locusts have eaten. And by the way, I've seen this. People who have lived a devastated life and then in a very short amount of time, everything has changed. And all the things that they were going after for 20, 30 years, they couldn't find, right? Fulfillment, joy in life, meaning, purpose. Within a very short time, they have it all. You know, I close with this story, but I've been listening to all these testimonies online of Jewish people coming to faith. I don't know why. They're special. More than any other testimony, I, I really love hearing Jewish people come to faith in their Messiah. It's like, this is your Jesus. I mean, we're grafted in, right? Like a patch of skin from somewhere else that got stuck on a body. But this is your original Messiah. This is your Messiah. And so all these Jews are coming to faith, and we are living in amazing times. Jesus is coming back soon. But I remember this one testimony in particular, very moving, but this woman, she was Jewish, grew up in New York, but then she started rebelling because her home life was really broken. Her parents were constantly fighting. She was kind of the person who had to go in between them, right? And she hated that as a young girl. She's like, I hated that. And so she began to rebel, and then soon she left the home. She got into drugs. She started getting very promiscuous. The locusts were eating out all those years in her life. But then in God's sovereign hand, she met this just guy, this random guy on this trip, who himself, he himself was Jewish, but he was like seeking out drugs. I think they were on some trip to look for mushrooms in Mexico. I guess there were some special mushrooms in Mexico. <laughs> we're not talking about pasta and like casserole. We're talking about like, this is psychedelic, right? But they were on some trip to look for mushrooms. But then little by little on that trip, well, actually, I think the man went first and then the lady met him later. But they were with a bunch of Christians. They ran to a bunch of Christians on that trip. And then the man began to hear about Christ and receive the Bible And then when he met his girlfriend, he began to share Christ to her. And the story that completely changed her heart was in John 8. But it's very powerful. But this woman said, you know, I didn't want to hear about Jesus. I thought Jesus was for Catholics, right? (laughs) Every, Every cross and picture of Jesus in my neighborhood was a Catholic church. I didn't even know Jesus was Jewish. But then she's like, okay, fine. You can read me something out of the New Testament. And then her boyfriend opened up John 8 and started reading the story of the woman caught in adultery. The Pharisees and religious leaders caught her. They left the man. I mean, it takes two to have adultery, but they left the man, grabbed the woman, dragged her to the square, put her against the wall, and began to accuse her. And the penalty for adultery in the Old Testament is death. So Jesus happened to be there, and they brought her to Jesus to test him, saying, Jesus, what do you say? This woman was caught in adultery in the very act. So what do you say? The law of Moses commands that we kill her, that we stone her. And then Jesus quietly bent down, started writing on the ground. 
right? A lot of you guys know the story. And he wouldn't answer. So as he's reading this story, right, the, the girlfriend is just on the edge of her seat because she's like, I've never heard this story before. I, I don't even know how it's going to end. So she's on the edge of her seat. And then he kept reading. Jesus was writing on the ground. And then they kept asking him. So then he stood up. And then he just said one thing. Okay, you want an answer? Whoever has no sin, throw the stone first. And then one by one, people started dropping their stones because they knew we're all sinners. And she said right in that moment when she heard those words, something broke inside of her and she just started weeping and weeping and weeping. And she's like, I was exploring Buddhism, Hinduism. I was studying Buddha, Krishna. She's like, I never heard anybody say something like that. Something that would pierce my heart like that. But Jesus did. So anyway, she became a follower of Christ. That caused crazy chaos in her family because her parents were rejecting that, rejecting her and her marriage to this Christian guy. But she kept going, and then later on, I mean, her testimony is beautiful, right? Completely reversed. Everything got changed in her life. Ultimately, even her relationship with her mom, which was the worst, the most toxic, she said, now is a beautiful relationship. And all my children and my grandchildren are following the Lord. Beautiful, right? So look at what God can do. Amen? Okay, this is the reversal we're talking about. God will restore the years the locusts have eaten. Okay, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord. We, we worship you. You are an awesome God. God, you are a God of great reversals. And Lord God, many of us here, we have had many, many years that have been eaten up by our sin and the consequences of sin and other people's sin. Even other people's sin have devoured years out of our lives. But Lord Jesus, you can restore all of it and you will restore all of it. That is who you are. You are the God of great reversal. And everything that we've been going for and wanting and striving for that we couldn't get in a very short amount of time, you can bring you can begin to rain down your grace to the point where it, those things don't even really matter as much anymore because now we realize we have you. We have you. So God, thank you so much. He who has the world but not God has less than he who has nothing but has God. That's a quote from C.S. Lewis a paraphrase of his quote. But he who has God and nothing has more than he who has the whole world but doesn't have God. That's how valuable God is. We have God. So that's you, brothers and sisters. If you're a true believer sitting here today, it doesn't matter what you've been doing, how much of your life has been wasted on things that will not last, if sin has been devouring your life, be encouraged. You have more. You have far more than you realize. So let's just come before the Lord and God will restore those years. Thank you, Father God. God is in the business of reversing and restoring. In a very short amount of time, he will change it completely. Father, thank you so much. Father, I've I've experienced that. I've seen it with my own two eyes and my family. My own two eyes. Thank you, Father. Oh, we give you all the glory. Give you all the praise. Let's just come before the Lord. Today's communion Sunday. We're going to have a moment of prayer and then go into communion.
But let's just respond to the Lord. Let, let's just cry out to God and say, God, please, please restore the years. If this is what's in your heart, you could pray, God, I believe. I believe your word. I believe what we've looked at. God, please restore those years. You do not need to live in the situation you're in. You, you, do, you don't. Okay, under judgment, with that stink filling up your life, the stink of sin and the consequences of sin and God's judgment, we do not need to live like that. God can reverse that. Let, let's just come before him. Thank you, Father God. He can restore those years.
that we may find help and grace in time of need. So, Lord God, we just come before you, Lord. Oh, we worship you, Father. We're so thankful that your throne is a throne of grace. Yes, it is a throne of judgment. It is a throne of sovereign authority, but it is also a throne of grace. That is the aspect of your throne that the New Testament focused on for the believer. This isn't for everybody else, but for the believer in Christ, it is a throne of grace. Thank you, God. That's the throne we come to. So, Lord God, thank you so much, Lord. No matter what we've been through in our lives or currently facing, Lord, you have a great word. You will bring a reversal. There is a great reversal coming. If we would just repent and turn back to you with our whole hearts, there is a great reversal coming. In all the ways we looked at, there is a great reversal coming, Father. So, Lord God, thank you. Oh, thank you, God. There's no reason to lose hope. Our hope is in you, is anchored in you. Thank you, Father God. Lord God, as we move now into a time of communion, bless this time. Lord, we want more faith in you, not less. Communion is your command to build up faith in us, so give us more faith, Lord God. As we read in our CG Bible study this past week, the man said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, God, a little bit. Help my unbelief. Give me more faith, God. Thank you, in Jesus' name we pray. Okay, we're going to take communion. So if you guys can just uh, grab a cup, you should have one by now. Let's take the top thin tab, pull it back, and you'll see the cracker. And we're, we're going to take it together, so wait for everyone. But let me say a quick prayer. Father, Lord, I pray and ask that you would forgive us of our sins. Lord, you warn us to not take communion in an unworthy manner. And if there are some here, maybe they need to do some more business with you. Maybe they aren't right with you. There is no shame, there is no condemnation, but they need to wait. They need to repent and then come back and take communion. But for those who are ready, Lord, I pray and ask that you would receive this in your name. Amen.